Hello, and welcome back to The Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine. In this podcast, I usually talk to the people behind our monthly magazine for RHS members, The Garden. But this month is something a bit different, as our newly relaunched sister publication, The Plant Review, takes over. And so I'm delighted to be joined by James Armitage, the magazine's editor. But James, before I leave you to it, let's just talk about why we've changed the name from The Plantsman to The Plant Review. Well, The Plant Review is a magazine for plant lovers, but one thing it certainly isn't is political. We kind of felt that the name was starting to become a bit bit political. People had associations with the name. They didn't like the lack of gender neutrality. And some people felt positively offended by this, others slightly irritated. And we thought it was just getting in the way of discussing plants, which is what the magazine's all about. And the other thing, I think, is that the plantsman might be slightly off-putting to people. I've said it's a magazine for plant lovers, but that is the only requirement. You only have to love plants. So the idea that people might have, oh, well, I, I don't call myself a plantsman, it's not the magazine for me, is entirely wrong. You only need to love plants, and then there's something in every issue for you. And the terminology, the plantsman, can, as you say, be a bit off-putting, doesn't it? Because, And we know that gardeners are normally pretty humble people, so the plantsman does imply a very, very high level of uh, chairmanship of some sort of plant group or committee or something, doesn't it? It, it, it does entirely, and there's certainly that sort of content in it but there's also content for people who just love getting out in their gardens and growing things and maybe they're not brilliant with latin names there's still stuff in the magazine that they can uh, thoroughly enjoy one of the things that probably has been a bit of a frustration for us all over the years is the plantsman hasn't been very well known uh, we have the garden magazine going to members every month but the plantsman which is quarterly has sort of been known but sort of hasn't give us a bit of the history about it and what people might want to know well it, it's 40 years old this year as a publication and it was started by a man called Hugh Johnson who's an eminent garden writer and who realised in the late 70s that the RHS was starting to grow really rather fast and the publication that it sent to its members which was then the journal of the Royal Horticultural Society needed to be a good deal broader to take in this large and expanding membership and that left a kind of gap for um, a magazine for really keen people who love plants and so that's where the plants came from and it wasn't initially an RHS publication but it did eventually in the the 1980s um, come under the wing of the RHS and this isn't its first name change in its time it's been the new plantsman and the plantsman new series and so uh, the, the name change is nothing new it always has sort of been a little hidden away and we really want to change that. And we've done a lot about that this year, haven't we? We've been at the shows and we've been trying to advertising it more because there is all this beautiful content that you create and write and commission and yet not enough people see it. Give us some of the excitement about what sort of articles and features can people enjoy in it. Well, in the, the latest one, um, the first is the plant review. We've got a huge eclectic range of stuff. We've got um, the RHS trial of Agapanthus. We've got Andrew Hirons writing about his lecture at the RHS John McLeod annual lecture in November. So before that's even been given, something on aquascaping, which isn't, isn't mm. actually uh, <laughs> natural territory for our readers. But I think when they read the article, they might be persuaded. Um, uh, <laughs> we'll see by the letters page the we'll, following month. Possibly will, yes. Um, got stuff on the science of autumn colour, Osmanthus breeding, an amazing botanical garden in Madeira, 10 years of Chelsea plant of the year, uh, news book reviews and all the latest from the world of plant classification, including a name for the national flower of Trinidad. 
James, for anyone who's met you or listening to you, they can probably see and hear that you're a true plantsman at heart. What's your affiliation with the Plant Review and, and how long have you been writing and working for it? Well, I first came across the plantsman when I was a plantsmanship student at Edinburgh Botanic Gardens, which would have been, oh gosh, the late 90s, horrifyingly. <laughs> and, uh, and then I couldn't believe that I'd found this magazine that seemed to have been sort of made for my interest. That here was this sort of incredible, eclectic, diverse magazine just dealing with exciting garden plants and still today that remains its unique selling point there isn't another magazine quite like it a few years on and at 2002 I started to work for the RHS as a botanist and by and by I got the opportunity to write for the plantsman and you know you can't imagine what a thrill it was you really feel like you've made it then that your star is in the ascendancy um, and over the years I've published quite a lot in, in the plantsman and when the opportunity came up to edit it, there was, I guess, a feeling that that my interests combined botany, horticulture and writing, and so that I would be a, a good choice, and I was very pleased to accept. I think at the, at the heart of whatever we do, whether one works on a magazine or a podcast or a, a website or a book, is you want people to engage with the content. You want people to read it, enjoy it, and maybe learn from it. What are your hopes for The Plant Review in the next few months and years? What I really want to do, primarily as editor, is continue to develop the editorial content that we've got, which I think is really strong. But there's just so much that's happening in the world of plants and plant enthusiasts that I want to just capture as much of that as I can and put it in the magazine. The world of plants is so diverse and the magazine should reflect that. But the other side of this, which I'm still learning, I've only been editor now for about 18 months, is the publicity side, is actually trying to get people to know about the magazine and to pick it up and read it. And we've gone a long way towards that, but we can do a lot more. So that's enough about the changes for the Plant Review, James. So tell us, who have you been speaking to for this podcast? Well, I've had one of the truly great experiences that any plant enthusiast can enjoy because I've been to visit Roy Lancaster in his garden in Hampshire, which was fascinating. I've also been speaking to director of the Yorkshire Arboretum, John Grimshaw, about his adventures plant hunting in East Africa. And we'll be speaking to some former editors of the then Plantsman about their desert island plants. That all sounds great. I can't wait to hear it and look after the podcast for me. One of the leading voices in the world of plants is Roy Lancaster. Sometime guest on the Garden Podcast, Roy is a dedicated plantsman with a truly fascinating garden. I spent some time with him at his garden recently to understand where his enthusiasm comes from. I think uh, inspiration probably came later when I was already into gardening. And so we came here in uh, 1982. The first thing I was looking for when, when we came here to view this garden... Uh, was somewhere that could have my own collection, my own uh, selection of plants. And the, the selection you now see are basically plants, A, that I collected myself as seed uh, in the wild from China, Chile, and a lot of my travels abroad. Plants that have been given me by uh, fellow collectors over the years. And I have been known to buy plants. So it's a whole mixed bag of plants I have. And in fact, when some people ask me if they can come see my garden... Or they asked me, what kind of garden do I have? I said, well, I don't see there's a garden. I call it my ark. So that's really basically what my garden is. But it's been all things, of course. It's been a place where our children have grown up. 
It's been an adventure playground. It's been a place for cricket and football and all, yes, broken plants and dead heads and all kinds of things. But a place where I can bring up a family, a place where you can uh, have privacy. So within these living green walls of hedges, I've assembled this uh, selection of plants from all over the world. And uh, gradually, over the years, since 1982... I've been adding and adding. And you're really lucky in coming today in that there are more things flowering this year than any other year I can remember. So whilst most of the magnolias I have, and I think all the camellias, have now finished flowering, as for what's flowering now, we're sitting on the patio, which was here when we came. Because we're south-facing, and it gets very warm here in, in summers, I've got a lot of plants of Mediterranean origin growing here. Looking behind you now on the wall there, there's a butylon, Megabotamicum, and that's from uh, South America. It's threaded its way through a rose called Sempervirens. That's a very old rose in historical times. It's European origin, small white flowers, but lots of them, and richly scented, and those lovely glossy leaves, which, as the name suggests, are evergreen. You really see that in gardens today. It's not the hardiest of roses, and it's not one you'd recommend for really cold areas. But as a lot of previously cold areas are now becoming warmer, then it's a rose that I'm sure will be more widely grown. So there's the rose there and the uh, abutilon, more about 10, 15 feet high there, just behind me, and this the south wall, of course, and... Uh, the Ceanothus, evergreen Ceanothus, flowering its heart out now. This is Skylark. Everything's doing well so far. And none more so than this amazing honeysuckle, which is one of my prized possessions. It's called Lanisera calcarata, and calcarata means with a spur. And this particular one is a giant of its kind. It comes from uh, West China, from Sichuan province, but you'll notice that the flowers, they open sort of a creamy colour, and then there's kind of a midway colour. They have a little pink coming into them, and it's almost like a peachy colour. And they end up this wonderful, almost a burnt sienna. It's like a deep orangey red. burnt, And you get all three colours on the branch at the same time. Now, that's gone right up to the top. That's almost 25 feet high. There's another honeysuckle going up there, called the Lanistra pilosa, which is a Mexican one, completely different from this calcarada from China. And it's very fragile stems with short glaucous leaves. And then its flowers, instead of coming in the axles of the leaves all along the shoots, they come from the tips of the shoots and they hang down like some fuchsias do. And it has a look of a fuchsia. It's a cracker, and, it, and it's gone right up there. You never think it would have the energy to climb up through that lot, all these other things clambering on that wall, but it does. Now, I could go on. We only looked at a piece of wall around our kitchen window. If you're just starting or you're new to it, ask questions, and real gardeners will tell you the answers and share the stories and think in terms of your career as the three Ps, Plants, people, and places. Plants of all kinds from all over the world in all kinds of gardens. And they all have characters. And they all have stories to tell. Even if it's a weed in the garden, that plant is special. 
And it's only a wee because we call it one. It wasn't born a wee. It wasn't born with a name. Uh, we only give them pigeonholes so we can refer to them amongst ourselves. But a plant is born, it is what it is. And so even weeds can be important. Every plant has a story. And some plants, those stories have never been told or never been discovered. So have a respect for everything. You'll be able to read more about Roy in coming issues of The Plant Review. We've all got plants that we dream of growing but could never get away with. I have a particular love for Metrosideros excelsa, the Bahutakawa or New Zealand Christmas tree, but in my little part of Peterborough, there's no hope of growing it. But John Grimshaw is a man with a passion for seeking out virtually ungrowable plants, and I spoke to him about his adventures plant hunting in the mountains of East Africa. John, you wrote an article for us in the June edition of the then The Plantsman with the swashbuckling title, A Journey in Search of Ungrowable Plants. And it was about the plants you'd found in East Africa. And it's not a part of the world I had ever really considered in great detail. And so I was absolutely hooked to see the incredible diversity of stuff growing there. What attracts you so much to that flora? My interest in East African plants goes back about 30 years when I started working on Kilimanjaro, first of all, studying elephants in the forest and then broadening my interests into the forest ecology itself and getting to know this extraordinary flora, which really is almost completely unknown to any any European or British gardeners, completely alien to them. And that really got me interested. There are, of course, these extraordinary giant plants, the giant groundsels and giant lobelias growing high up on the East African mountains. And these are sort of botanical big game for anybody interested in diversity of extraordinary plants. So it's the sort of ecology, the peculiar ecology of the the place that has driven this plant development. Is that right? Yes. The extraordinary thing about these African mountains is that Of course, they're equatorial, which means they have a constant day length, 12 hours day, 12 hours night. They're also high enough for a half thousand metres, 5,000 metres, getting on even much higher in the case of Mount Kenya and Kilimanjaro. So they're quite cold as well. And the climate has been very well described as being winter every night and summer every day. And of course, that gives a very peculiar set of conditions for plants to adjust to. And the result has been this extraordinary evolution of really very curious plants indeed. I remember when I was a botanist at Wisley around, I think it must have been around 2010, they tried to grow some of these tree lobelias, as they're called, in a sort of sheltered spot by the wild garden. And they hung on, they hung on through a few horrible frost and then the weather turned really bad that winter if you remember and they all carked it in the end do you think there's any hope of growing any of these plants in the in the uk the problem with growing these things in the uk is that although they can take a couple of degrees of frost perhaps they can't cope with continued frost really hard freezing plus the lack of light and of course in their native habitats they would be getting a warm day following a cold night whereas that doesn't happen necessarily in a an english winter so the conditions are so difficult that really the only hope of growing these things 
is to grow them in a refrigerated bench undercover. I used to do that at Kew uh, many years ago, and that's an awful lot of work and, and trouble to grow these things. They are ungrowable. But you, um, you and your, your work on new trees particularly uh, must have come across some incredibly unlikely things growing in the UK. Yeah, there are some East African plants that will grow just about in the UK. Quite a lot of these things will grow under cover, so long as they're from the forest where it doesn't freeze and you can imitate that in the greenhouse. So impatiens, for example, are easy. They're very common African forest plants. African violets are another East African mountain plant. So we do grow a few of these things uh, quite commonly, in fact. Outside, it's very limited. A few red hot pokers, Knipophia, will survive occasionally. The wonderful East African mountain tree, Hagenia abyssinica, just about survives in frost-free conditions in the west coast of uh, Cornwall or Western Ireland or somewhere like that. But they're really terribly marginal in most cases. So yes, one occasionally comes across something rather special, but it's terribly rare. One of the things that really comes across in, in your article is that this was no picnic. Um, this wasn't some sort of touristy junket. There's quite a lot of hardship involved. What do you think it is that drives people to this this level of discomfort, apart from anything else, just to look for plants? Well, the classic explanation for going to some of these difficult places is the thing that George Mallory said when he was asked about going to, why did he go to Everest? And he just said, because it's there. And I think that's as good a validation as any for wanting to go to these places, because it's there. Because it's the only place you can see these plants. And if you want to see them, you've got to go and you've got to trek and you've got to put the effort in. And that's what makes it so rewarding. Well, your globetrotting has certainly brought to my attention a range of plants that I knew nothing about at all. So thank you very much. And thank you for talking to us today. And to finish, some of our previous editors present their desert island plants. Hello, my name is Sabina Nees. I was editor of The New Plantsman from 1994 until the year 2000. Today, my desert island plant is Corinobutylon oxenii. This is perhaps not so well known in British gardens. I've chosen this plant because we have grown it for quite a while in our garden here in Scotland. It's really very underrated and, as I say, not terribly well known. It forms a shrub between 1.5 and 2 metres tall. Um, but the leaves are like a vine leaf almost. They're sort of three-lobed with teeth. They're softly hairy. And the bark is quite pale brown. And then the flowers, these cup-shaped violet flowers, deep violet with a central yellow boss, and then a typical um, chambered fruit that you get, similar to malva and abutilon. It stays in flower for many months, you know, from about May to September. So it is a good desert pine plant to have because of its long flowering season. Hello, I'm Mike Grant. I was editor of The Plantsman, now The Plant Review, from 2005 to 2018. My desert island plant is Eryngium cross zabellii, Yos Iking. 
I've always been a fan of Eryngiums. Yossi King is a selection that was probably made about 20 years ago. In late spring, the deeply lobed green leaves emerged from the ground, and then by mid or early July, the stiff stems with their spiky flower heads, consisting of a dome-like cone surrounded by the spiky bracts, emerge and are revealed in their full glory. And they are a glorious blue, the flower heads. I think it's a good plant for a desert island. I mean, it's not a maritime eryngium, but eryngiums are called sea hollies, so a lot of them do grow on sand dunes, so quite appropriate for a desert island. I'm Christopher Gray-Wilson. I was editor of the plants run from the late uh, 1990s right through to about 2007 or 8. My desert island plant is a, a group of clematis I hybridised in the garden here. Morris Foster, who is a good friend of mine, collected seed in uh, Yunnan about 20 years ago, and he gave me a plant of the subsequent seed, and it proved to be an interesting form of Clematis Montana, which is widely grown in gardens. And I realized that this plant was so special, it had extra large flowers. I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could get plants in the garden with flowers as big as this grandiflora in ordinary Clematis Montana, because these flowers are twice the size. So uh, when it flowered in the spring, I went around the garden to see what other Montanas were flowering, and the only one out was one called Mylene. So I got out the paintbrush, and I took pollen from Mylene and put it onto this introduced one from Morris Foster. And it hybridized well, and I had about 30 seedlings as a result. I grew them on in the vegetable garden, and they flowered two and three years later. And to my delight, some of them turned out to be really good with big flowers. Having looked at them in the garden, I thought, well, at least 10, 12 of them were well worth growing on. And I decided to call them after characters from Lord of the Rings. So we had Frodo and Galadriel and Samwise and Boromir and Gollum and so on and so on. And of all those, two turned out to be of exceptional value. And they were one called Gandalf, which obviously has white flowers. And the other one is Pippin, which has pink flowers. I mean, you can have uh, quite cold, wet desert islands as well as uh, dry, sunny, sandy ones. So I think it'll do very well, and they do well in this part of the world, which is the driest part of the country uh, here in East Anglia. I should think they'll do well in virtually all parts of the country. There's so many plants to choose from and so many that have meant a lot to me over the years that it's very difficult to pick one out. But if I had to, my desert island plant would be Musa Basju. When I first became interested in gardening and I discovered this banana that you could grow outdoors in the UK, I just was astonished. The, the boundaries of gardening seemed limitless then. If you grew bananas in the UK, what, what couldn't you grow? In my garden in Belfast, I grew this grove of bananas and I was just absolutely hooked from then on. And eventually my, my parents sold that house and moved to the mainland. And a bit of that banana still grows in my mum and dad's garden and uh, fruits to this day. And it's a sensational sight and stops people in their tracks. So that's the one I would have to choose. That's all we've got time for in this edition of the Garden Podcast. 
Chris Young will be back in a few weeks as he looks at the October edition of The Garden magazine. In it, he'll talk to Chelsea award-winning designer Dan Pearson about his regeneration of a historic site at Lowther Castle and discuss the many tastes of the humble apple with food author Mark Diacono. And on a finishing note, we've made some technical changes to our podcast feed, so if you've experienced any issues with receiving your RHS podcasts, please make sure to hit unsubscribe and then resubscribe on your favourite podcast app. Until next time, from me, James Armitage, and the podcast team, goodbye. Goodbye.